Would you take your Bible this morning and turn with me to John chapter 15? John 15. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are still a few on the back table back there. Feel free to pick one up. Um, Right now would be a good time to do that. Uh, Our time together is greatly helped by you seeing the words that I'm about to read in front of you. I'll be referencing them throughout the sermon. It'll be much more enjoyable if you see what I'm talking about in front of you in your your lap uh, or on your phone this morning. John chapter 15, we're going to look at verses 12 through 17 together uh, this morning. Just these six verses this morning. These are the, this is Jesus speaking here in John 15. And the Apostle John records for us these words that Jesus spoke to the disciples. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask in the name of my Father, or ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. No word in our language, at least in our world at this moment, at our cultural moment, seems to be used as often as love, but at the same time misunderstood as much as it is. And of course, with any word in any language, uh, there is a range of meaning for a word. So when we come to a passage like this one this morning, when we come to John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17, and we see Jesus command us to love one another, we have to ask ourselves the question, what what does this word mean here in this context? And word meanings are beholden to the context in which they are used. You can't always use every definition for every word in every situation. For example, if I cleave to my wife, like I'm told to in Genesis chapter 2, if I cleave to my wife, I hold fast to my wife. But if I cleave the wood as I'm preparing for winter, I cut it in two or I split it. If I cleave to my wife, I'm not chopping her in two. At least I hope not. If I cleave to my wife, I'm not chopping her in two. And when I cleave the wood, I'm not giving it a hug. This is the nature of our language. And it's the nature of every language. But here's the danger. When we come to a passage like this and we see verse 12, Jesus say, this is my commandment that you love one another. We begin to import a whole host of meanings into the word love. Sometimes we are tempted to use the wrong definitions in the wrong context. And love is a word that when we see it, we sometimes, many times, bring the wrong definition along with us into it. And uh, an easy, uh, an easy example of this would be, again, if I love my wife. 
and I love chocolate chip cookies. Am I using the word love in the same way? I, she hopes not. Yeah, sure. Like <laughs> some people I see nodding, and I'm very concerned for you at this moment. This is a big concern. Okay, we'll talk later. If I saw you nodding, I made a mental note. Watch out. When we see the word love in the Bible, like again in this context, uh, we have to ask ourselves the question because it's not always obvious as do I love chocolate chip cookies or do I love my wife and the uses of that word in that instance. In this instance, I think Jesus gives us a lot of great context here to understand what he's saying when he tells us or when he commands us to love one another. Now, some Christian teachers have broken out this word, and in the New Testament, you'll see three different words that are oftentimes uh, translated as love. You'll hear these, and I'm sure that if you've hung around church for a while, you've heard these. Agape is oftentimes said to be unconditional love, which is, I don't know, the, the nature of conditions is such that I'm not sure that that's possible, but phileo uh, is brotherly love, or eros is romantic love. But any Greek scholar, Greek is the language that the New Testament was written in, any Greek scholar will tell you that these, that these words are used far more interchangeably in the New Testament than the current marriage literature would want you to believe, or is convenient for them at, ver- at the very least. So, our goal here this morning, if you're looking at your Bible and you see verse 12, And you see verse 17 at the end of our passage this morning. Our goal is to understand the command that Jesus gives us to love one another. And again, those two verses are sort of a bookend of this little, this teaching that Jesus gives. This is my command, commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. So the question we have to ask as we look at verse 12 and the setup for what Jesus says in 13, 14, 15, 16, and then restates in 17, is how has Jesus loved us? How has Jesus loved us? And that question, how has Jesus loved us, has three answers that Jesus gives in these verses. And each of those answers will guide our time together. Let me give you the three. First, Jesus has loved us by laying down his life for us. Two, Jesus has loved us by making us his friends. And three, Jesus has loved us by choosing us. Three things. Let's bite them off one by one. First, Jesus has loved us by laying down his life for us. Jesus has loved us by laying down his life for us. There is no biblical definition of love that does not include sacrifice. There is no biblical definition of love, no form of love that we can actually think about and call love in the same way that the Bible does that does not include sacrifice. So Jesus takes all the the stakes all the way up to 10 here in Verse 13, he says, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friend. Sacrifice here, a life laid down for his friends. Now immediately, 
we are into territory where we're talking about love and where there have or there are many problems with the way that the world talks about love that butt up against the way that the Bible talks about love. Here's one of those instances. The biblical definition of love, even as Jesus states it here, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, does not allow for self-directed love. Modern Christianity has mistakenly included self into the recipients of love. That interpretation of Leviticus 19.18, which then it gets quoted in the New Testament several times, Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Love your neighbor as yourself. And secular humanists have snuck in here and say, see, yourself, that means you have to love yourself first. But anytime this verse gets quoted, either in the Old Testament or the New Testament, this being the first time that, the God, that God says it to us, is that the, anytime it gets quoted, it is telling us that we don't have any trouble thinking highly of ourselves. That's what this means. You don't have any trouble thinking about yourself first. You should love your neighbor even as yourself first. Our sinful inclinations drive us to be myopic, self-centered people who only act in our own interest. The Bible knows that about you, and it knows it about me. We want to say, look, i got to love myself first, right? Because that is fully in line with who we are in our sinful nature. But what if you actually loved your neighbor as yourself? You got three square meals yesterday, and you made sure that you did. Do you know if your neighbor did? Do you know if everyone in this room got three square meals like you did yesterday? Your stomach rumbled. You went to the fridge. You knew exactly what you needed. But if your stomach rumbled and your first thought was, Is my neighbor hungry at this moment? Before you made a sandwich, it would be loving to check on your neighbor and to see if they're hungry as well. You might say and object to this notion. You might say, but there are people who are really down on themselves naturally. We've all met people who are really down on themselves naturally, and maybe this is you. Maybe you struggle with self-loathing. But self-loathing, according to Scripture, is still just thinking about yourself. Those who spend all day hating who they are as a person still set their primary focus on themselves. And when self is primary focus, they cannot be loving their neighbor. In order to love neighbor, self-sacrifice would be necessary, even in the instance of sacrificing self-focus and self-loathing. Jesus knows and defines biblically for us what love is, and it always includes sacrifice, self-sacrifice. And in our passage, Jesus knows that in him, the clearest, of self, the clearest example of self-sacrifice would be on display. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. 
When you and I think highly of ourselves, it's pride, and we'll get to that in a moment. When you think highly of yourself, that is what we call pride. When Jesus thinks highly of himself, that's good, and it's right. It's proper. It's the right thing because he is, in fact, God. He thinks highly of himself, and he should. But how much more should we not think highly of ourselves when Jesus didn't think highly of himself? How much more should we not think highly of ourselves when Jesus himself did not think highly of himself? Because when he took on human flesh, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, he says that Jesus took the form of a servant and that he humbled himself becoming obedient, even to the point of death on a cross. Greater love has no one than this. No greater act of sacrifice is possible than for Jesus to lay down his life. When we make sacrifices, when we sacrifice self and self-interest, our sacrifices are in fact blemished. They're imperfect. doesn't mean we're not called to them. They're just blemished. But when Jesus laid down his life, it was perfectly pure because he is the spotless lamb of God who took on flesh in order that he might take away the sins of the world. And Jesus calls us to picture the same sacrificial love. Jesus calls us to picture the same sacrificial love. Love one another, he says, as I have loved you. How has Jesus loved us? He has loved us in self-sacrifice. This love is sacrificial. And so, brothers and sisters, do you see sacrifice as an essential part of love? Do you see sacrifice as an essential part of love? This is how Jesus has loved us. He died for us. And I wonder if we, when we hear the command, love one another, if we understand that it means making sacrifices. You cannot love your brothers and sisters in Christ and never be willing to give up any time or energy, comfort or convenience, material things, etc. But it doesn't need to be complex. Invite a family that you don't know over for dinner. Maybe you don't know them well and it takes time and energy to prepare a meal for them, to clean the house, etc. Yes, you're tired after a long week. You've been working hard. It will, in fact, be inconvenient because you've got to find where you put that one extra folding chair. And what will you talk about? You don't even really know these people. Or maybe you've wanted to go hunting this weekend, but you talked to a friend at church who needs their car repaired, and you, in fact, are the one who knows how to repair it. Maybe there's a family you know who's struggling to make ends meet and buy Christmas presents, and you were going to upgrade your home entertainment center with your Christmas bonus. These are opportunities for self-sacrifice. They don't need to be complex. The love for one another that Jesus commands is sacrificial. The second thing we learn in our text this morning is that the love that Jesus has for us, Jesus has loved us, By making us his friends. Jesus has loved us by making us his friends. 
Now, if we struggle to define biblically the word love, we might struggle also to define the word friend. Because to call someone a friend is to say something about your commitment to that person. If you say, this is a friend of mine, you are saying in some way, shape, or form that you are committed to that person. There's commitment that lies underneath that statement. If you're unwilling to sacrifice even small amounts of time or energy or comfort or convenience for a person, then they are not your friend. By biblical definition. Friends maintain relationships with one another, and that takes, that takes time and energy. If you cannot commit to, with some frequency, communicate with someone, talking and listening, then you can't really call that person a friend. Friendship contains commitment. And so when Jesus says in verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you, and verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. When Jesus calls us his friends, he is saying that he has committed to us. That he has committed to us, those the Father has given to him, those whom he has chosen, he is committed to. This is evidenced in the way that he lays down his life for his friends. Again, in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus' commitment to us is evidenced in the fact that he died for us. And by dying for us, he moved us, in verse 15, from servant to friend. We know that we are his friends, also, because of what he says at the end of verse 15. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus, in himself, has revealed to us the Father's will. He has revealed to us right here in the Bible, right? That sits in your lap or is on your phone app this morning. This is God revealing himself to us. And we who are in Christ are given the spirit of Christ to rightly understand God's will as communicated in God's word. This is commitment. Jesus has entrusted to us all the truth that we need about who he is. He is committed to us by dying for us. But notice also, I want you to see this clearly this morning. Jesus commits to people. Jesus died to redeem a people for his own possession. The church, those of us in this room, uh, we make up who have trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. We have trusted Jesus and therefore he has redeemed us for his own possession. So the church is a group of redeemed people. It is an assembly of redeemed people. It is a gathering of redeemed people. Jesus died to purify his bride, the church. Not this amorphous blob of individuals who float out in the ether somewhere, but a real defined group of people who sit here in this room this morning. People with names and faces and birthdays and family histories and sicknesses and joys and desires and dreams. Jesus died for specific people, not just this ethereal word or an ethereal group of people that we never know. Jesus died for people. 
I'm saying that for a specific reason. And I want to ask you the question, just like we asked about sacrifice. Do you see sacrifice as an essential part of love, but also do you see commitment as an essential part of love? Committed to people. Because here's what we do in the church. We get here, we commit to a thing. We're not quite sure what we're committing to. And it is always far more easier to commit to times and tasks and events than it is to commit to people. And it's hard to commit to people because people are unpredictable. They're messy. They're challenging. They're sinful. They let us down. They make us mad. They rub us the wrong way. And it feels bad. And so we choose to commit to lesser things. But when you commit to, or when you click yes on a scheduling email for Buffalo City Church kids, you must not think that you're just clicking yes on a scheduling email. But when you decide to attend a community group, you must not think that you have done nothing more than just adding in a penciled-in event to the family calendar. And when you become a church member, you must not think that you're just dropping a check in the offering box and making sure that this facility doesn't fall apart. In each of these instances, in each of these instances, you need to be reminded, and you must fight internally to be reminded, that loving one another as Jesus commands here in this text means that you are committing to people. When you serve Buffalo City Church kids, you are serving children by teaching them scripture. The people, not the time on Sunday morning, not the event of gathering together. You are serving the children by teaching them truths of scripture that God has communicated in his word. Additionally, you're serving parents who are worn out, who need some spiritual nourishment on a Sunday morning, who need to be able to sit for more than 35 seconds and hear the word of God come before them. In that instance, you are loving people, not just clicking yes on a scheduling email. When you consistently attend a community group, you're encouraging the hearts of others in the gospel, building relationships so that you can do consistent, spiritual, specific good to that person or people more effectively. Not a penciled-in event on the family calendar, a group of people. When When you commit to church membership, you're aligning yourself with the mission of a church, dedicating to do spiritual good to other people. Representing Christ to the world at large, you're loving people. You're not just dropping a check in a box and making sure the building doesn't fall apart. You're loving people. The love that Jesus commands is one, sacrificial, and two, committed to people. The third thing that Jesus teaches us about how he has loved us Jesus has loved us by choosing us. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus makes it clear right out of the gate in verse 16 that we did not choose him. That we did not choose him. The love that Jesus has for us included choosing us as those who would have otherwise rejected Jesus. 
The love that Jesus has for us includes choosing those of us who would otherwise have rejected Jesus. And that's not just one or two of you. That's not just half of you who would have rejected Jesus. It's literally every single person who has come to Christ would have, apart from Jesus choosing us, rejected him entirely. The reality of this verse, verse 16, the implication of it for us is that it should incite humility in us. It should incite humility in us. Because could we be proud of something that we did not do? Can we take credit for the work that we had nothing to do with? And Jesus didn't choose us because we were lovely. Jesus didn't choose us because we were worthy. But by choosing us, he made us lovely. And he made us worthy. Jesus did not choose us because of anything anything good within us, but, because, but according to the mercy of God that we were chosen by God. If you lose sight of the fact that apart from Jesus, you can do nothing, like he says earlier in chapter 15, if you lose sight of the fact that you, in and of yourself, can do nothing good spiritually, you will not fulfill the command to love one another. Friends, let me say that again. If you lose sight of the fact that apart from Jesus, you can do nothing, you cannot fulfill the command given here in verse 12 and 17 to love one another. Jesus says that he chose us and appointed us to bear fruit. The fruit is following his command. And the command here is to love one another. And so, like we've asked in the previous sections, do you see humility as an essential part of love? Jesus says that he chose us and appointed us in order that we bear fruit, a humbling reality. Pride is the enemy of the love that Jesus commands here. If you think yourself better than others in this room, If you think that you had something good going and Jesus chose you because of that, you cannot love others. You can condescend on them. You can patronize them. You can correct them. But you cannot love them. And when you think of yourself all of the time, you cannot be thinking of others. And you certainly can't be loving others. And so this all begins to tie together. The self-sacrifice that's essential to love one another as Jesus commanded us. The commitment to people that, that Jesus commands here. Coming out of, flowing out of the reality that we have in fact been chosen by God and not the other way around. All of these things humble us. And the love that Jesus commands is humble. So, the question, how has Jesus loved us, is answered three ways in this passage. Jesus has loved us by laying down his life for us. He has loved us by making us his friends. And he has loved us by choosing us. And so, look at verse 12. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. In order to understand the command to love one another, we must first understand how Jesus has loved us. Now that we see that clearly in this passage, we have to ask ourselves the question, 
how are we to love one another? And I want to point out something that's a little bit surprising in conclusion here in verse 12. That Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. What he doesn't say here is, this is my commandment that you love me as I have loved you. But he shows us, but he shows us here that we love him by loving one another. If you self-sacrificially or are unwilling to sacrifice self, if you're unwilling to commit to people, if you're unwilling to see in humility all that Jesus has done for you, including choosing you, then you do not love Jesus. Because the way that you show love for Jesus is by loving one another in the way that he loved us. So, how are we to love one another? First, we must love one another sacrificially. So Jesus gave himself for all of us. And we are commanded then to do the same. And many times people object at this in particular. We might say, yeah, I'll give up a little bit of this or a little bit of that, but I'm not going to give up much more than just a little bit of time or energy. And I'm supposed to give up all of myself in the same way that Jesus does in verse 13, that he lays down his life entirely for his friends? And the answer is yes. And then the next question that we want to have answered for us, then who is going to take care of me? Remember, we don't struggle. We don't struggle to wonder or to love ourselves. Who's going to take care of me if I never think about myself? And the answer to this, time and time again in Scripture, is do you think that those who are obedient to the commands of the king will be forgotten by him? Do you think that those who are obedient to the commands of the king will be forgotten by him? The answer to that question is no. You really can't give all of yourself. You can really give all of yourself in loving one another. You don't need to worry about where what you need will come from. You can sacrifice all of your time, all of your energy, all of your comfort, all of your convenience, all of your desires, all of your dreams, all of your material things. You can sacrifice it all in service to Jesus. By loving one another, Jesus will ensure that you have everything you need. And, like he says at the end of verse 16, the Father will give you whatever you ask in the name of the Son. Your friends, this is an illusion. You are not the one who takes care of your needs. Whether you refuse to acknowledge it or whether you openly acknowledge it, you're not the one who has cared for all of your needs. Jesus is the one who ensures that you have what you need. Christians, don't be worried that you'll overdo it this week in loving one another. You cannot do that. You cannot overdo it in loving one another. Jesus has promised that he will supply your needs. And friends, Jesus can be trusted with everything. Literally, everything that you have, everything that you are, you can trust Jesus with every single resource you have. And so, the the right response to this is to go all out. To leave this place and think to yourself, 
How can I love one another without withholding for myself, fully trusting Jesus that everything that I have will be taken care of or everything that I need will be taken care of. And so everything that I can have can go out from me. If you think that sounds like a bad idea, remember Jesus Christ who has withheld nothing from you. And here he commands you to do the same. I wonder what would happen if everyone in this room went home, looked at everything that they had, looked inside and said, this is who I am, and said, what would happen if I opened my hands and said, God, whatever I have, whatever I am, give me opportunity to love others openly and freely with it. How can we love one another with the food in our fridge and our dinner table? How can we love others with the vehicles God has given us? How can we love one another with the skills and the talents that we've developed over years of hard work and labor? How can we love others with our retirement account? Don't leave this place this morning and clench your fist around the things that you think that you can't give up. Your time, your energy, your comfort, your convenience, talents, material things, etc. Friends, we must love one another sacrificially if we are to fulfill the command to love one another as Jesus has loved us. Second thing, we must love one another committedly. Jesus has called us his friend. Jesus has called us his friends, committing to us not for the next year or two or next five minutes or next 500 years, but he is committed to us for all of eternity. Are you committed to others in the same way Jesus is? Again, not, not this sort of like commitment to time things and calendar things. Not like, yeah, I'll be there at 6 p.m., but I'll only be there for an hour, not a minute more. Which translates to, I will determine if I want to participate based on how I feel in the moment. But a commitment to one another that says, yes, I will be there whenever and for whatever you need. We live in a world where people are decommitted. They might hold on to events and times tightly, but they hold on to people very loosely. When invited to participate, they say things like, I would love to, but I'm not so sure about that night. We have a really busy week. People appear to be committed to lots of things in our world. But the lots of things only serve as an excuse to decommit when convenience and comfort are threatened. We cannot have this attitude as a church. We cannot have an attitude and love like Jesus commands us to love in this passage. We must commit to brothers and sisters in Christ because Jesus is committed to them unwavering. Don't commit to going to church. Commit to the people of the church. The church is composed of people. The author of Hebrews is clear that the church doesn't gather for the sake of getting together to be entertained or to check some personal boxes. He writes in chapter 10, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We gather to stir one another up in love and good works and to encourage one another. Decommitted people don't stir much of anything. 
Jesus tells you to love one another and then gives you the perfect venue. A group of people who are chosen by him and loved by him. A group of people that he died for to redeem. People with faces and names. People with family histories. And people with desires and dreams. But if you don't love people committedly, then you don't love Jesus. You simply can't have it both ways. Follow Jesus, therefore, into committed love. The final thing this morning that I'll say in conclusion before we move to the Lord's table is this. We must love one another humbly. Again, Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul writes here that Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death on a, de- death on a cross. And this is the greatest act of humility in human history because Jesus is in fact himself God, the one who took on flesh, who came to dwell amongst his creatures, the one who spun galaxies and stars and planets into existence, and he came and in abject humility died on a cross. Therefore, humble yourself. And by humbling yourself, I don't mean be self-deprecating. I mean, remove yourself from the, 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 the equation. If you think you're a big deal, you'll never show Jesus as a big deal. If you think you're a big deal, you'll never care to love sacrificially or committedly. Because you'll be the one thinking about yourself, or at least be thinking about yourself too much. And I'm willing to risk it and say that this self-focused humanism that runs the show in our world has left us in a place where you and I struggle immensely with being humble. For seeing us for who we truly are as people. Burger King lied to us. You can't always have it your way, not even at Burger King. And the world lies to you when it tells you that self is the only true governing force. Friends, be free of that nonsense. Humble yourself. Think less of yourself. Think more of Jesus. Think of the people in this room who Jesus chose and died for. In order to love one another, look to Christ and leave your sin. And when you truly do that, you'll find your self-focused mindset that says, care for yourself first is empty and will leave you bitter, frustrated, discontent. Friends, look to Christ. The secret of lo- to loving others and to following the command that Jesus gives us here to love one another as he has loved us is to look to Christ who perfectly loved us and love him by loving one another. And so that's what we get to do as we come to the table. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, as we receive the elements, the bread and the juice, we see before us an expression, a picture of the reality that Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for us to move us from servant to friend. An expression of the commitment that God has put on display for us in the sacrifice of Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you're thinking this table represents an individual affair, let me say that it doesn't. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians tells us that it is a unifying event. When we approach the table, when we participate in the Lord's Supper together, we are to, what he says, is to determine the body, 
to discern the body. To understand men and women and boys and girls who are in this room, the struggles that they have, the challenges that they face, the difficulties that they are up against this upcoming week. The joys, the celebrations, the desires, all of the things that are in their sphere today. This is not about you and Jesus. This is about all of us. Jesus dying to redeem a people for his own possession. A group of people who have had their sins paid for because Jesus Christ died in their place. And so, as you approach the table this morning, recognize the broken body. The broken body that is represented by the bread should have been your broken body. The blood that's represented by the juice should have been your blood spilled. But Jesus stood in and did it for you. And he stood in and did it for the person on the right. And he stood in and did it for the person on your left. So, this morning, trust Jesus more fully. See his sacrifice laid before you. Know that you are not an individual exclusively, but that you have been called by God to love one another. Those who Jesus has chosen, those in this room who have trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. If you're here with us this morning and you don't know what that means, if you don't know what it looks like to trust Christ, to come to Christ, to leave your sin and to come to him, I'd like to talk to you. Meet me in the narthex afterwards. That's that room back there, I'm told, the narthex. Um, or meet me up front. I'll be in one of those two spots. Um, I'd love to talk to you, but this is not for you. This is for those who have trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and who have, and who have turned from their sin. So if that's you this morning, feel free to come and participate. Kids are in here with us this week, and I would ask parents to exercise discretion for your children. If they have, in fact, trusted Jesus and made a credible profession of faith, and they're beginning to bear the fruit that's keeping with repentance, by all means, invite them to participate together with you in the Lord's Supper. If that's not happened, take a moment. Use this as an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them, with them again. You don't have to be a member here at Buffalo City Church to participate, but we would ask that you, uh, that you are a regular attender or a member of a, of a church that preaches the same gospel as we do, as we do here. I'm going to pray. The worship team is going to come forward. Um, and then, when in you're prepared in your heart, come down the, the, to the front, receive the elements, and, uh, and then head back to your seat um, and participate, partake in the elements when you're prepared to do so. God, we thank you this morning for the love that you have displayed for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Love that is, in fact, very sacrificial. God, love that is committed, that is not decommitted, that does not go away when simple things happen in our lives. God, we thank you for the example that Jesus Christ gives us in humility. He humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, even to the point of death on a cross. God, would we follow him more closely this morning. God, would we love one another in this place, in this room, God, with committed, sacrificial, humble love. God, through your 
Holy Spirit, God, would you strengthen us for these things? God, would you change us and transform us more into the image of Christ? Give us hope in him today. But these are not just things that we do for the sake of, for the sake of understanding better. But God, that we do these things because we have in Christ been committed. God, we thank you that you have chosen us, that we did not, in fact, choose ourselves. God, we pray this morning that we, as your people, would walk out of this room ready to put on display the love of Jesus, sacrificial, committed, humble love for all of those we come in contact with. God, as we approach the table this morning, God, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. God, would the good news of the gospel resonate in our hearts and minds as we go from this place? We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.